everybody. Thank you for being here. Tonight we have, by the power of our vows, along with causes and conditions, a Dharma heir appearing before us. Gilbert Gutierrez is an attorney practicing in Riverside, California. He began his meditation practice over 30 years ago, studying various forms of meditation, martial arts, and Qigong. However, according to him, nothing comes close to matching the simplicity and the beauty of Chan. Gilbert received Dharma transmission in June 2002 from Master Shen Yen. He is the only American to have received Dharma heir status in the Dharma drum lineage of Chan Buddhism under Chan Master Shen Yen. He now teaches Chan meditation regularly in California and lectures in many North American cities. His weekly Chan classes in Riverside are recorded, transcribed, and posted on the internet. I highly recommend you check them out. The information caters to all levels that eventually will reveal that there is nothing to teach or to learn. However, we must continue to learn until such a realization. Please join your palms. Bow. Thank you very much for the introduction. The introduction was actually a very good segue into what I'm going to talk about tonight. Tonight, um, for the me, am I on or not? One, two, three. One, two, three. Okay. Um, tonight we're not going to talk too much about meditation, but we're going to talk about the practice in general and some foundational principles of Chan. The um, uh, when we we practice, what we end up coming to is a a point of um, that we develop an incredible compassion. So the topic tonight is compassion, but this is a different kind of compassion. Um, so tonight's topic is going to discover the roots of that compassion. This is very something very, very special. I'm going to start off with a couple of uh, stories, a few stories that kind of will tie into what we're going to be talking about. Actually, one of them has uh, already been mentioned, which is a story of a, a master who told his, his uh, uh, young monk, he says, you know, I have nothing to teach you. And the, the student said, well, Shifu, Shifu, well, then master, um, why am I learning from you if you have nothing to teach me? And he says, you learn from me until you realize I have nothing to teach you. And so I'm very happy that you come here to listen to nothing to teach. <laughs> um, recently, I was at a um, uh, uh, at UCLA for the Vsoc Day, and uh, there was a very well-known um, UCLA uh, Buddhist study professor there, and he was talking about the practice, and he was talking about enlightenment, and he said, enlightenment is like that you practice, and the practice is like a boat. And then you take this boat, and you go across the shore. When you get to the other side, you realize you don't need the boat. And so you can put it down on the other side of the shore. And I thought, hmm, not bad, something missing. The difference between being a professor and a, a, a practitioner. And um, does anybody know what the difference is? Yeah, go ahead. It's 
pick up or put down? Nothing to pick up or put down? No. <laughs> no. Why do we practice? It's a perfectly good boat. <laughs> Why would you put it down? Is it like when you... Yes, go ahead. You have to speak very loud, though. Uh, maybe do whatever we can to help. That's right. It's a perfectly good boat. Like, let's say you said, you know, I'm watching too much TV. I don't want to watch any more TV. Would you throw the TV in the trash? No, you'd give it to somebody else. Or you'd say, oh, you know, I used to ski, but I don't ski anymore. So, you know, I have these skis. I want to give them to somebody else. Right? So something missing. So what was it he was missing? Was that's a perfectly good boat. Not bad. How many people could he take across? He missed it. He missed it. the essence of the Mahayana practice. Mahayana, yana meaning the, the practice and maha being the highest practice. This is arises from, and I'm going to take you to, how you get that kind of Mahayana heart. Bodhisattva heart. So he, he missed it. It looks so easy. And he said, is this enlightenment? Maybe kind of an enlightenment, um, but I don't want a full play of that kind of enlightenment. I'd rather just keep going back to the other side of the, and see if I can put people on the boat and, and take them over to the other shore. It doesn't matter how far I go on, on the other side of the shore. It's the same place. Where am I going to take the people to? Sometimes when when um, I would do a uh, retreat and people would do the slow walking meditation, the people get very anxious because the person in front of them is walking slow. And they want to pass them. Beep, 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 you know. Where are they going to go? They're walking in a circle. <laughs> but yet we get impatient, you know. So any side of the shore is fine as long as once you touch the shore, you can come back. And when you touch that shore, you come back and you go, hey, you know, it's the same thing over there as over here. But I'll take you over there so you can see it's the same thing. And then you find out, I have nothing to take you to, nothing to teach you. This is a practice. Very wonderful, a wonderful practice. We make it hard, but it's very, very simple. The, um, this, uh, one of the original stories of Bodhidharma and, and his um, first student, Weka. And um, when Weka uh, went to Bodhidharma, he actually cut off his arm to, to, to show uh, the, the boot, excuse me, Bodhidharma that he was sincere in the practice, that he really wanted to, um, to, to learn. And so finally, the Brahma came out of his cave and said, what are you, you seeking? He says, I, I, I want to find out, you know, um, who to unshackle my mind because my mind feels bound. And he said, show me your, your mind, search for your mind. So then he came back later and he said to the Bodhidharma, I have, um, I've searched all over and I cannot find my mind. And um, Bodhidharma said, you, you've been free. Now, these stories are very simple, and some of you have heard these stories before. 
but they go to the essence of what I'm going to teach this weekend. Just like nothing to teach, you've been free. Why? It's already there. But it's the compassion of the master to, to, to send the student on his way for, to investigate and to try to find those answers and say, why? What was it? Why was he free? So you start embarking on an investigation to find out and say, why was that? How was he free? And uh, so maybe we'll come back to that later and see what, what you, you think. Another story, this was one that of um, concerning Master Xian Yang, my, my master and, and myself. And I remember going to a retreat very early on when I had seen him. And, and I caught him up on the second floor. This was in, in Queens, New York. And I said, Shifu, um, this uh, practice, I'm beginning to understand it now. It's like as if you're riding a bike. And when you ride the bike, you then get a, a, um, a stick stuck in the spokes. So when the stick gets stuck in the spokes, boom, the, the bike stops. And it falls over. And everything comes to a halt. And he said, yes. Yes, that, um, that, that's the way it is. Um, and then I was walking away and he says, Gilbert. And so I turned around and he said, but remember that it only stops for you. What do you think he was saying? It only stops for you. Nobody? Yes, go ahead. Because you, are, you were the one who was aware of it, who realized that. Other people may not be aware of it, and it doesn't stop for them. It doesn't stop for them. So what was he telling me? You're right. Keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Don't forget the others. Don't forget the others. Yeah, you guys are doing pretty good already. So you got you got have a, a, a better score than some chapters right now, so you're still doing good. <laughs> All right, but yeah, it, don't forget the others, you know. And I really didn't even know that right at that moment, and it it came to me later, and then later it came to me so deep, so how how incredible it was. And when he said it to me, I should have known it right then, but. He, but my practice still wasn't there yet, and my wisdom wasn't enough to, to go further. You could say maybe I still had the professor enlightenment, um, very limited. And, and so later on when I really saw that, I, it made me cry because I, I realized how wonderful that experience was that to, to, to receive that from the Master. And it's something that you have to replay and then go, oh my gosh, look, look at what, he, what he, uh, he, he, he was teaching me at that time. I remember one time at a retreat, I was talking to him and in an interview and he said, oh, you know, you could become a Lohan. You reach this, or you, let me just say, he said, you could become a Lohan. And, and, and um, a Lohan would be like an Arhat. 
So to me, I'm going like, um, kind of understand that. Um, but he didn't really sound like I was giving me a ribbon. So what did he mean by that? Does anybody know what he meant when he said that? That's as far as I'm going to get. Because I don't have a Bodhi heart yet. I haven't developed it strong enough. So I can only deliver myself, professorship. But I cannot, I, could, I was not there to deliver others. And so, so when he was saying that, he wasn't giving me a prize, he was just telling me, you're limiting yourself. No, you have to push on to, 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 to practice harder. And when, when you do that, then you, the, the whole world literally opens up for you. How does this happen? It happens through the right view. The right view is something, and I, I, probably last time I came here I talked about the right view, but I'll keep talking about it, and each time you're going to hone your skills in terms of what I mean by the right view, uh, in terms of the practice. We have to have an idea of how, how to practice, how, what is this all about, or what they say, the nature of things. The difference between somebody who's a very adept practitioner and a person who's a beginner is the adept practitioner has a better understanding of how things work. Let's take a non-practitioner. A non-practitioner goes, why did that happen to me? Why did that happen to me? No, that, why did that happen to me? But a practitioner will go, boy, I really screwed up, you know, because cause and condition never fail. If I would have studied for the test, I would have passed. Or I got an A because I studied hard, not because I'm intelligent or whatever, but that might be part, but I really studied for the test. But the person says, I'm really, really smart, but I didn't pass. Well, because you didn't study. And you, you see things the, the way they are. You're clear about it. A long time ago, there was a movie called The Color of Money um, with Paul Newman. And it, in the movie, it was very strange because Paul Newman was this pool player. And he practiced all the time, all the time. He was just practicing, practicing. So he's in a tournament, and he's playing against this this other player. And the player um, is missing the shots. And every time he misses a shot, he says, "I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that." Every time he just, "I don't deserve that." And finally, at the very end, you see him shaking Paul Newman's hand, who won the the match. And he's saying, "I don't deserve that." And Paul Newman said, "Yes, you do." Yes, you do. <laughs> what was he telling you? You didn't practice enough. You know, you're, you're not taking responsibility for, for what happens in your life. And we, sometimes we walk, walk around and we go, oh, you know, why did this happen to me? You know, this, this is very bad. But you understand that that's the way all of these things work. We call that pratika samapada. Causes and conditions never fail. Always remember that. Causes and conditions never fail. The Chinese boiled it down to a real simple thing. If you plant a melon seed, you get a melon plant. Simple, right? So what do you plant in your life? Sometimes the people, they plant anger. And so what grows out of it? Anger. They get angry, they start doing things, and then the, 
than what happens. So uh, th this last week, I'm an attorney by trade, and there was this one um, young girl, and uh, her her significant other, you call him boyfriend, was beating on her, and and then her child was beating on her. Why? Because he saw the dad do it. Causing conditions never fail. It'll go to the next generation because that's what's being planted. If the man was loving, the, the young um, boy would jump into his mom's arms and, and hold her because that's what he saw. We see things as they are clearly in terms of what's going on in, in the world. And we develop uh, a right view towards things. And with this right view, and we're going to go and find out how the right view works, we develop this compassion, this great compassion. This is not a compassion that you feel towards your family, okay, or your boyfriend and girlfriend um, on a good day, um, <laughs> or husband or wife. Um, but this is a compassion that transcends all of that. It is not what I call the baby dead raccoon compassion. Okay. Oh, look at the baby dead raccoon. Oh, it's just, I feel so sorry for it. Oh, look at that rabbit. He's got a bad leg, you know. But if you saw, oh, look at that rat. That rat's limping towards us, you know. Get a broom. Um, it's different. It's different because we... That's conditional. That's like a conditional compassion. It's more of an attachment than anything else. And so we, we really don't have the idea of an equanimity to sentient beings. We pick and choose. When we do that, that's not really, really compassion. You know, because then we start thinking, oh, well, what's in it for me? Or if I do this, they're going to do this for me. You never have the thought, just do it. Why? Somebody's got to do it. And then, uh, and then it gets done without gauging, well, you know, I could be making this much money or I could be doing this or I could be doing that. It just gets done without any thought, without any idea, actually, ultimately, without any wisdom or compassion. It operates perfectly. And in a state of uh, equanimity, what in the Abhidharma they call upika, the, a, a state of equanimity which is like the highest jhana that one reaches, at that point there's no one to reach it because everything is just simply in a state of, of equanimity. But we do that through practice, but you have to distinguish out what compassion is versus uh, this conditional compassion that we have. You know, so. I, I mean, sometimes I ask people, you know, uh, if your family members were ne needed money, would you give it to them? Yeah. Would you give, you know, your neighbors? Yeah. You know, would you do that? And after a while, people go, why should I do that? So they, they draw the line somewhere and say, okay, well, this is where I draw the line in terms of my compassion. And Master Shen Yang told a story about this taxi cab driver who was very much in a hurry driving recklessly through the city of Taipei and he ran over this woman and and killed her and as a result of that 
he went to prison. The, the husband of the woman, do you, anybody have an idea of what he did? Yeah. He I'm sorry? Did he him? More than that. More than that. He no, he supported his family when he was in prison, but some along the same lines. He he supported the family, and when they asked him, "Why were you doing that?" and he says, "Who else is going to do it? They're going to be without a, a means of income during the time period. Could you do that? It's very difficult, right?" But that's a, state, a wonderful state of equanimity. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a heart like that? Who could, who could harm you? How could any adversities in, in this realm bother you? It's amazing. It's very, very difficult to do. Once uh, I knew a person, that an elderly lady, and her family was taking advantage of her, always taking advantage of her, to get money from her, to have her do this, dump kids off, and and um, her her daughter says, why why do you let them do that? They're always taking advantage of you. And she says, you know, I'm old. If I worry about that, if I worry about them taking advantage of me, I'll be always worried about how they're they're cheating me and how they're doing this. But this way, I don't have to worry about it. If I can do it, I do it. I don't I don't I don't carry it around with me. Not bad. Not bad. Doesn't mean that you, you can allow people to take advantage of you all the time. Compassion is tempered by wisdom. But that kind of heart can't be taught. I mean, like, like I, I, when I say it can't be taught, it can't be taught like in a regular way. That person was special. But as you begin to practice, your heart will evolve into that to the point that it's not your heart anymore. It's just the heart of the Buddha. And that's where you're going. It, it's not something that, that's learned in that way, but there is a process of seeing how things are and looking at them that enable this body to have this kind of a perfected wisdom. And it's called Prajnaparamita, the, the, the highest wisdom. And this then compassion is born of wisdom it's very important and the wisdom that we're talking about uh, is often referred to as uh, like in for instance in the abhidharma the um, super mundane wisdom and abhidharma if i talk about that that's part of the practice um, and it was a set of instructions on how mind works very incredible uh, it's not something that you can read once and get it, or twice and get it, or three times and get it. You just keep going back and back. But it tells you how how this works, and they call this a super mundane wisdom because it transcends a, a regular wisdom. So, for instance, if um, you you listen, let's say when you're a little kid, you know, and your mom says, "Don't touch that pot." Because if you touch it, you know, it's hot, you're going to get burned. And so you know, this is regular wisdom. Um, it's very interesting because I was listening to this one um, uh, comedian, George Lopez, and he was talking about how Mexicans 
the mothers and fathers differ in how they teach kids. The Mexican mothers would tell the kid, mijo, son, don't touch the pot, you're going to get hurt. And the and if it was the father, the, the child would say, Dad, if I touch the pot, will I get burned? And the father would say, why don't you touch it and find out? And and the, the idea is that that's a direct experience. All right, I'm not going to do that again. And But the idea of, of wisdom is, is something that is how this all works. And that's the most important part is to see how things work. Why is this, how does this come about? Why do I have these clinging feelings? Why do I have these, these feelings, desires, vexations, elations, whatever it is, why, why are these things coming up? Why are the things everywhere um, arising? And we, we tend to walk around in a very unusual way, which is, is that we begin to look out like we're a robot looking out this way and so whatever we see so if it's Gilbert the robot he just sees like this okay and he, he doesn't see anything else he's unaware of the statue behind him he's unaware from the side over here the air condition all the different things that are happening when people are twitching all of the things that, that happen simply because he's Gilbert the robot and he can only hold on to one thing at a time why because that's the program that he runs. The program that he runs is a program that is constantly clinging to things. Now, I'm going to take you out of Chan 101 for a moment on compassion. I'm going to throw you into the deep end for a moment. And tomorrow we'll talk about this more. When we are aware, what we're aware of and what we should be aware of is not the phenomena around us. We're aware of that phenomena simply because it's arising, but we should be more aware of when self arises. Now, self is a very insidious um, um, ailment to the mind. And the reason it is is because self arises in, in two different ways. One of them is um, that it attaches to things so um, so it it will attach to something and it says oh it thinks of a, a shiny red car I want that car the car itself is not the problem but all of a sudden there's something that attaches to it and says I want it I like it or I don't like red you know I don't like that sound or it makes a really good sound and it's constantly attaching to it boom Boom, boom. Anything that comes up, it attaches to it. And then it's like a monkey that jumps from that thought to the next thought to the next thought. But you only see the, the, the visual thoughts, but you take these other things that arise to be you. But they're not. They weren't there a moment ago. They just arose in that moment. Do you have a, like, a, a, like a ding bell? Is there one there? They just arose in that moment. So we don't see that, though. Um, and as a result of that, what happens is, is that we miss the part. We think that we should be expelling from mind the images that come up in mind. They're there naturally. They're natu everything's naturally appearing. Oh, thank you. But we don't. So 
Okay, now pay attention. Okay? There's going to be a test. Did you hear the bell? Yeah. Not a trick question yet, okay? <laughs> you heard the bell, right? Did anybody have an impression of the bell? Raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Did you like the sound? You like the sound? <coughs> When did that come up? When I noticed that I didn't dislike it. How come you didn't notice when I arose? You only, you got, you see, Gilbert's new rules. Mm -hmm. Something you have to learn, okay? One, the mind is a coward. It hides behind things. Two, the mind is very clever. It's saying, listen to the bell, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. So when you heard the bell, all of a sudden something came up to meet it. It wasn't there before the bell was there, right? It only came up from the impression through the sensations and it came up in that moment. It wasn't there before. But we convince ourselves because the self is so clever that it's always there. It's always there, but it's not. It's not. It is a thought. It is phenomenal. It arises because you like that sound. For some reason, it's pleasing to the ears. Bing. Why? Maybe some of you went to retreats and go, ah, oh, I'm free. I don't have to keep my legs crossed. <laughs> um, but Or you like the sound of it. But we trick ourselves into not seeing the eye rising. The eye doesn't exist. It wasn't there a moment ago, but we call it eye. You even said it. Guilty. Not, not you, the, the self. Still with me? Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> okay. So, we become aware of when self is arising. It clamps onto things. Now, there's another component, and I will repeat these things and I'll repeat them again tomorrow, because it's important when we meditate. There's another component of it that when self arises that we don't see it. I call it the hovercraft. And it pops up. It's a desire. If you like the bell, what other sounds could you like? Oh, it sounds like Christmas. I like, I like that sound. What else sounds like it? And it's hovering over mine, looking at mine like a smorgasbord, trying to pull up something that, that it can pull up. It's created a desire. I like, I like that sound. So I like arises. 
It doesn't, it's not clinging to anything. It's not holding on to the sound of the bell. It, it's, um, you know, I just thought about this. If I keep going like this, it'd be like Pavlov's dog. After a while, you guys will start salivating. Um, <laughs> but it, it's hovering there looking for something. I want to, I want to what? It's Saturday. I want to buy. I want to go to the mall to buy something. What are you going to buy at the mall? Nothing? I'm returning. Huh? I'm going to return. Oh, you're going to return. <laughs> Why? Because she didn't really need it anyway. She just liked <laughs> to buy it. Very clever self. It's like a recycling self. <laughs> it puts back and buys again. Why? Because it likes it. I guarantee you're going to buy something tomorrow. I'll trade this one for this one. No, these green socks with the red stripes aren't good, but I'd rather take the red socks with the green stripes. Right? Because you just, it, it's the mind of acquisition. And it tricks you. Very clever. You see how mind is? It's very clever. But if you try to find it and you look at it, it goes, hey, not me. Not me. I'm not there. I'm not there. And then what does it do? It says, oh, you're doing a very good job, Brownie. You're doing so good. You're look, you, I, I, I see. You, you see? I, I can pick out self. Whenever it comes up, boom, I got it right now. So, so clever. Watch, watch me. Here comes self. Oh, here, there it is. You see, I got it. Good job, good job. See how clever it is? It flips around on you. And so you're, you're, like, you're, you're like trying to say, well, where is it at? Because it's so clever. But if you try to look at it, it's a coward, and it will go away. When you look at self, it will go away. It doesn't like to be there. It's like, um, like a thief that would be in your house. Let's say there was a thief in your garage, and you turn on the light as you're coming in. It would run away right away, because it doesn't like the light. What is the light? The light is the illumination of the mind, of, of, of the awareness that's there, of the mind that sees that. How does this fit into compassion? Because we, once we recognize how self works and how mind works, then we begin to understand the mind's disease. Does anybody know what the mind's disease is? Nobody. Attachment. Attachment? And where does that come from? Self. There you go. There you go. It's like you have a computer. And you're there and you have to knock out a paper or you have to do something, write to your friends and all of a sudden it says, I'm tired. I'm hungry. You know, you need to clip that toenail. Um, no, or do something else. And you're going, wait a second. Why is my computer telling me to clip my toenail? Or why is it saying, let's go play a game? That doesn't work right because I'm engaged in this function right now and it doesn't work. If that, those things were coming up in the computer and it would be sending you somewhere else, what would your computer have? A virus. a virus, right? It's a virus. You have a virus. Okay. And Chan is an antivirus program. You insert it into mine and it ferrets out the, the virus. And what is the virus? Oh my gosh, lo and behold, it's you. Sorry. But it's you. 
and makes you feel uncomfortable. Like, okay, I, I see the virus in him and her, you know, but I don't think I have a virus. No. But the trick about the virus is, is that it, it makes you think like you don't have it. Um, a while back, I was exchanging some emails with some of my students, and, and I came across a quote from the Usual Suspects movie, Kevin Spacey movie, and he said that the, that the greatest trick that uh, the devil ever pulled in the world was to um, uh, convince people he didn't exist. And it's the same with the self. The self convinces you that you're okay, you're cool, it, do, it doesn't really exist as a self. And so, so when you begin to practice, you start hiding the self. And so you hide it so that it's not there. Um, and then you walk around acting like you're a really great practitioner. Um, once this one young man went to Shifu and he said, Shifu, I've had you know, an enlightening experience, I'm enlightened. And Shifu started asking him questions. Well, what does it feel? Does it feel this way? Does it feel that way? Does it feel this way? He goes, Shifu, he goes, why are you asking me all these questions? You make it seem like, like I'm not enlightened. So he got very upset and he goes, well, if, if you were enlightened, you, you wouldn't be responding in the way you're doing now. <laughs> the self tricked him into thinking that he was enlightened. And um, so, so you, you have to watch it because the self is very clever. So when we practice, what we're practicing is watching exactly how mind works and recognizing these impressions, mental impressions that are arising are not us. They, that mental impression of the like of the bell wasn't there until the bell rang. And then in that moment, then, it came up. But because it happened so quickly and it's invisible, it clings to the sound, we didn't see it. Through sleight of hand, it, it, it appeared. And we take it to be our mind. This is a mistake many people make when they practice because they want to make the self all polished up, really much, much better version. The new and improved self, the clean self, the enlightened self, this type of a self, whatever self it is, it wants to do that so that we, you know, and say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm enlightened now, so myself is this way. No, I'll tell you, my, my self is disgusting. You know, I, I really, to tell you the truth, I can't stand myself. It always causes problems. Whenever Gilbert arises, you know, he always makes the wrong choices. But if I recognize when he arises, then I understand it's not really Gilbert, it's just a mental impression arising in accordance with the situation. So it doesn't, it doesn't get bothered. But once you let the self govern what pops up in the mind, it will keep popping things up in the mind. If you realize that, remember I said self is a coward, self will recede into mind. There is a definition of what mind is 
And one of the definitions of mind is what enables the five senses to contemplate. What enables the five senses to contemplate. Not think, contemplate. So for instance, in this moment, if you were just to allow mind to rest, just close your eyes for a moment, let mind rest. Don't hold on to anything. then you see mind is, is at rest. It sees all these things arising. It can even see that when the self arises, if it rests enough. Remember in the Heart Sutra, they talk about that um, the five skanda are empty. And what are the five skanda? Go ahead, say it. I'll give you partial credit if you get three of them right. Uh, are they the sensation, perception, emotion, consciousness? You missed one. Uh, yeah. I got three. Form. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. And when we study the Heart Sutra, we study it backwards. We mess everything up. They would have been much better when they said consciousness is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than consciousness. But we start with form and we blow everything. Form is nothing. Form, this is form. It's innocent. It doesn't do anything. It's just form. You know, you see it and you say it's a book. Okay, it's a book. It's an old book or it's a written up book, whatever it is. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't have anything. I mean, I've talked to you guys before about the Krispy Kreme donut. The donut's innocent. It doesn't harm anybody. It's you putting it in your mouth that harms you. But consciousness is a whole different story. We stop at form when we study the skanda. Oh, you're all empty. You're all empty. What's, what is, form is not an emptiness, empty is not in form. Nobody ever gets a consciousness. But if you start with consciousness and you go, Consciousness is empty. What does that mean? There's no permanent impressions. If there was, that bell would still be ringing in your ears. And your impression of, I like it, but if that bell does ring there, it's perfectly there because you put it there. You, you put all of those things into mind. <coughs> and, and so as a result, putting it into mind, it, it's going to pop up. Um, now, how do things pop up in mind? There's different ways things pop up in mind. And if you understand it, because what I'm doing is I'm giving you Gilbert's, um, uh, uh, what do they call it, the guides of, or a book of, of mind for idiots, or what, what do they call those? For dummies. For dummies, yeah, for dummies. So this is for dummies, okay? Uh, not that I'm calling you guys dummies. 
maybe meat puppets, but not dummies, okay? Um, but the way things arise in mind are this way. One, if it's something recent. So let's say right before you came here, you bumped your car on something. And you go, oh man, I bumped my car. So you start thinking about you bumped the car. Start thinking about it, because it's recent. Um, it could be something that was repetitive. You know, I gotta get those red and green socks, gotta get those red and green socks, gotta get them. So after a while, those red and green socks keep showing up in your mind. Not that, okay. I know you probably wouldn't get any red and green socks. But they show up in your mind. They keep coming up because you put them there, you're frequent. And so imagine this is like a lotto, okay? And then every time something shows up, you put the balls in, in, the, in a big thing. You know how they pick the lotto and they pick the balls out? And those are all the red and green socks. And then the car, because it was recent, it's a bigger ball. Because, or you could say more balls because, because it just happened. And then the other one is that if it was a very strong experience, if you had a near-death experience, then that's going to keep coming up quite a bit in your mind. And so those things will always be coming up. So you know why these things pop up in your mind. Why? Because you put them there and you gave them a value. And this, so you gave them a certain amount of value, and so by the law of probability, chances are you're not going to be thinking about buying an ostrich. You're going to be thinking about those red and green socks, or whatever happened, or the accident, or all the things, because you put those in there. It's not, causes and conditions never fail. Now you know how mind works. Now you know why thoughts arise in mind, not by accident. Not by accident. They arise in mind because you put them there. You being this illusory self that generates this, this, uh, uh, th this thinking. But if one separates from that type of a thinking, then the mind will work perfectly. It functions perfectly without those kinds of attachments you were talking about that there's a clinging to it there's no there's no clinging to it there's no clinging to anything and it can function it can have a myriad of thoughts without having a thought at all simply because the thoughts come and go just like a stream and one is simply engaged in the practice that's why the one chan poem says have you heard of the man of the Tao who has nothing to do and, uh, and you go, well, how can he have nothing to do? By, by doing nothing. He ha does not have any idea of doing. He's just in function. So there's nothing um, there. So once one guy was sitting there, and the master came by and goes, what are you, uh, what are you doing? And he says, I'm doing nothing. He goes, you mean you're just sitting there lazily doing nothing? He says, no, lazily doing nothing is something. I'm just doing nothing. Try to see the difference. <laughs> Give it some time to, to work in. There's a difference. I have nothing to do right now. Nothing to do. 
if I went to the back room right now and said, oh, we're going to take a short break and I fell asleep for an hour, I would be lazily doing nothing. So now we have an idea of how this mind works. And so what happens is that when we know how the mind works, we are alerted to the things that happen around us. We become aware of, of our environment. We become aware of why people do the things they do. And when they, when they get angry or when they do things, well, we know and we can predict when people are going to do things oftentimes. One woman, she talked to me and um, she, she said, I need you to help me. I go, how can I help you? She goes, well, you really can't help me. It's, it's my husband. You want me to help your husband? What's wrong with him? He, he gets angry all the time. And I said, he gets angry all the time? Yeah, he gets angry all the time. Well, how long has he been doing this? For the last 35 years? I don't think I can help him. There's a lot of, of real heavy karma there and repetitive thinking or habitual energy that unless a person wants to embark in the practice themselves, it makes it difficult to overcome it. But we too, we have our habits. We have our own habits of things that we do. Sometimes the habits are um, picking the wrong mate. None of you have ever done that, I'm sure. Um, and then coming around the second time and picking the wrong mate again. How'd you do that? Well, you're good at it, you know? Or um, you, it could be different things that we do pulling out the plastic to buy things, um, or to, to do something, or say something, or gossip, or whatever it is. But we become very good at this habitual energy, and we don't see that. We don't see that this is all coming up from, why is it coming up? Not because it's us. It's not really us. It is habitual energy that's arising. But we're not contemplating mine, so we're unable to spot it. But when we contemplate mind and rest, then we're able to spot when the self arises. So when we sit there to meditate and we try to meditate and want our thoughts to go, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You cannot even get rid of your thoughts of yourself. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? It's natural. Natural? It's, that's right. It, you put it there, and they will dissipate on their own once you do not no longer give any mind attention to them because they're cowards. But if you if you cling to it, then you you get uh, you just go. I want the book to disappear. I want that to disappear. I want this and this and this to disappear. But so what? Even if you made them disappear, you didn't disappear. Why? Because the mind's very clever. It tricks tricked you into saying, okay, I can make this disappear, and I can make that disappear, and this, and this, and this, but um, uh, did it really? I remember when I was very young, I used to look at things, like, like if you looked at, at the thermometer on the wall, and after a while, you could make it disappear. Did it disappear? No, I just learned how to cross my eyes. <laughs> but it was a foolish notion, so kind of looked cool in the beginning, but, you know, it, it wasn't really the practice. And that's what we do when we meditate. We cross our eyes. And we try to make the self disappear. 
And that's why we can't get further. Have you guys ever wondered? You guys practice for a long time now. You ever wonder why you don't get it? Because you could never get it. You just have to see the right way to do it. And if you don't, you're wasting time on the cushion. And, and if it wasn't that way, I wouldn't be here to, talking to you. So for those who are new to the practice, this is a good, good for you. And those who have gone to many retreats, then start working the right way. Don't confuse yourself and try to make phenomena go away. The phenomena is going to rise and rise and rise. Self is going to rise. The only difference is don't attach to it. And don't attach to, to, to giving the bums rush to the self. I caught you this time, matey, out you go, foo. I really did a good job of getting rid of self. You see the foolishness in that? All you have to do is develop a mind of wisdom of how mind works. When you develop this mind of wisdom, it's called discernment. In this discernment, then, you discern, I shouldn't say you, mind discerns what is arising, constantly what's arising within it, in a state of equanimity, so that so that it doesn't have anything that it needs to hold on to. People are shuffling around, scratching their face, moving, whatever it is. It doesn't interfere with me talking to you, but I'm aware of it. It's just no need to, to do anything to point it out except for the, as an example, but I'm totally aware of all the things that are happening in this room. How is that? It's discernment and in a state of equanimity without thinking about you know me thinking, oh, I'm doing such a good job up here. If I start doing that, I'll mess the whole thing up. But when you are clear about what is there, this is the illumination. But it's not the illumination like you think, you know, that you're going to be illuminated, you know, like in one of these sci-fi movies or something, you know, and your whole body's like glowing. What you illuminate is how the mind works until you get to the point where there's no illumination. Everything is just perfectly in its place without illumination. Self arises, self goes. Self arises, self goes. As soon as self arises and, and the mind clings to that, I shouldn't say the mind, but, but it clings in the mind, then it messes things up. And then the illumination starts going down. And you're no longer able to see the things that are arising. But when the illumination is this way, you are aware of it. You can be aware. And as you're in an exchange with people, you might even be able to know what they're going to say next. Or they're going to do next. Or what they might be doing somewhere else. Why? Because the mind just fits so perfectly. So clearly. There's no separation in mind. And... and the mind is able to, is that something that, that we should aspire to? No. But it does make it easier for you to live life and live it without complicating your life. That's really, really important that you don't comp complicate your life. And um, I, I think we've, some of us who are a lot older, have made a life's journey of complicating our life. Some of you that are a little bit older, let's say, older than 20. <laughs> I'm not going to put a high mark up here, but um, um, how many of you live a real simple life? Raise your hand. 
You live a simple life? Good. You live a simple life with no complications in it? No, no attachments or anything? She has to say that? No, she feels that way. Okay. That's good. That's good if you can live a simple life. The, the more you can live a simple life, the better. The, the less that you want, the less that you worried about the self, the better it is. If you can do that, you know, you're, the life around you, and we'll get to that in a moment, is, is going to change. Um, because that's part of, of, of the whole uh, payoff. So far, is there any questions about what I'm talking about? Or que confusions? No questions? Okay. When we practice, we start with the idea of the right view. And it's strengthened by our understanding and by morality. Morality in itself will not deliver us. So if you say, I'm never going to drink an alcoholic beverage, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to do that. That still won't bring you to enlightenment, but it will set the table for it. It will set the proper environment for you to practice a wholesome practice. Now, in the Abhidharma they talk about wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, which is very interesting because they, they use the term kusala and akusala. And and um, when we use these terms, they mean in one that we are not attaching to anything. Um, and so whatever arises, when a thought arises, if it's kusala, then we don't attach to it. It's a wholesome thought. It has nothing to do with putting a fig leaf on a statue. It's not that kind of morality or wholesomeness. It has to do with the mind's ability to discern whether we're clinging to a thought or not. Unwholesome thoughts are thoughts that we cling to. So, for instance, when we ring the bell and we cling to the sound of it as a pleasing sound, it's actually an unwholesome thought. But don't confuse that with if I ring the bell and go, no, I don't want to hear it, it's unwholesome. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, is discerning when something arises and clings to something, this attachment. So the idea of wholesomeness is not clinging and, and uh, giving rise to a mind in the future mind that will be, not be clinging to thought. Whereas when we have unwholesome thought, it's constantly grabbing on to things now and in the future, it will grab because that's what we're putting into mind. The paramitas, the six paramitas, generosity, morality, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom, again, they all set the table. They all are there, they, they're necessary, meditation being the practice that we have patience with the practice, the morality to do the things in the right way, generosity, dana, that we want to to um, not cling so much to our our own to our own uh, what we, possessions, and to to give. You can give money. You can give uh, time. 
Um, I, I give time here. You know, people give time here. People give money here um, to, to develop this wonderful center that's here. Um, these all help in putting down the self, in not thinking so much about what, what, um, how, how you are. I remember when I was a young attorney, and there was this one attorney, well-known attorney in Los Angeles that was going to teach us. But I remember him saying, you know what my time is worth? I, you know, I get $350 an hour. And what he was telling us is that, that, that he's so important he's getting $350 an hour and, and he's giving us this. Is he really giving in the right way when you have a thought like that? That, you know, and everybody just kind of went like, yuck, you know, I don't know if I really want to be an attorney like him. But to him, he thought, wow, you know, that he, he had all of this um, um, uh, generosity, but he had the mind of, you know, what, what do I get back? I, I had one student that was a, an artist, and she had drawn up some logos for us, and, and then she told me, you know, um, uh, my work, it costs a lot of money. And um, I, uh, you know, this was very valuable work that I did. And I go, well, I, I give my time too. And she says, yeah, but all you do is talk. <laughs> and I went, well, yeah, I talk, but then I also give a lot of time as an attorney. But I never think about how much time or send a bill to it or create a mental bill of, of what's there. Just do what you do. This is a giving without a conditional giving of, of I want something back for this. What am I going to get? Later that person went on to the, what's that called, the manifesting, the, the secret. Anyway, the ones that they burned up all those people in the hut, they turned them into like, like hot clams. Uh, but she missed it. She missed the idea that cause and conditions never fail. And the people from the secret where they're thinking, oh, I've put my mind, I want a million dollars, I want a million dollars, it doesn't work that way. You have to set into motion the things to do it. So likewise, in our practice, we have to set the things into motion, set the table, and the paramitas help us do that. The precepts help us do that. All of these things, they're there. The studying helps us do that. And then we begin to explore. We begin to investigate for ourselves how this mind works and, and, and test it out to see. See if it doesn't work just the way that we thought, hey, if I do this, this happens. If I do that, that happens. And you can see that. The Eightfold Path, the right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Um, all of those things, they all build to set the table for us to practice. So we use those fundamentals. We learn about all of those. Today is not a class on the Paramitas or the Eightfold Path, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But all of those things are helpful in preparing the mind for practice, for investigation. So we say, well, what is investigation? Investigation is the idea that we're looking into mind to see how it works. 
So for instance, if you decided that you wanted to be a computer repair specialist, what would be the first thing that you would have to do? Learn about computers? Yeah. You'd have to learn how the computers work. So some you wanted to be a computer repair specialist. I'm a computer repair specialist. Okay. So you go there and, and you turn on the computer. Oh, you got the blue screen. What's the matter? It has a blue screen. Well, how do you fix it? I don't know. I don't know how it works. You're not going to be a very com good computer repair specialist. Likewise, if you're going to be sitting in meditation and you don't know how mind works, how can you possibly sit? What do you expect to get out of it if you really don't know how mind works? What are you doing on that cushion? If you don't know, you're sitting there going, I want the thoughts to go away, I want the thoughts to go away. Anybody ever have that? Of course. I want the thoughts to go away. I want the thoughts to go away. And then what do you do? The thoughts have gone away. I have no thoughts in my mind. Foolishness. Why? Because the, the, the self is so clever, it reverses itself. And, and it's taking credit for it. And it's going, shh, don't wake them up. And so, if you have the right view and you understand how this works, all of a sudden you go, oh, I see how this whole whole thing works. And by doing it in this way, then what happens is, is that you go, hey, and then after the hey, there's nothing. It's just clear. The mind is working. And it's not saying, oh, I got it now. It's just working right. And then what happens is that you will develop initially a, a jhana. There's different types of jhanas. And, and essentially, it's just a progression of one where it's a bumpy application of the method and then it gets to a sustained application of the method and then the next one um, then it becomes um, a um, a joy ah hey I'm getting there it's working it's like all of a sudden you learn how to pedal the bicycle now you're pedaling now I can go somewhere and then after a while you're going I'm a really good bicyclist it's even more joy. This is a, a Dharma joy, very, very happy joy that you get to. And so when you get to this joy, you're going, oh, this is so cool. So I, I remember I went to a retreat and I told Shifu, Shifu, I, I really have a good joy of the practice. And, and he just looked at me and went, yeah. And then I was walking away, because he always did that to me. Like when I'd walk away, he'd say something. He'd go, Gilbert, I, I turned around. And he said, but don't be too joyful. And I went, huh? Okay. But don't be too joyful. Because the next jhana is equanimity. Upika. And in upika, in equanimity, the joy drops off. It, it, it's not, don't worry, it's not like, like, ah. Uh, it, it's better. Because, because that joy was leading to something. And then when you get to that stage of that, then what happens is, incredible transcendent wisdom arises and from that transcendent wisdom comes compassion great compassion that you you look around and you go oh gosh you know I want to share this this is something that other people could benefit from and if there's anything I can do in this world 
before they send me out is I can use my time to talk to other people about this and to help alleviate their suffering. Not because I want to go around and say, oh, Gilbert, he was a great alleviator of suffering. Who cares? I don't care about that. I, I don't care. Just like my master, he, he ordered there would be no, no um, monuments or anything to him. When he was done, he's done. Okay? Pick up a new body and come back and do it again. That's a Mahayana way. And, and so the idea, though, is to make use of this body, make use of the mind in this way. And what happens is that in this way, you could say mind, if, if mind was personified into a body and the left hand got a cut, the right hand would go, let me take care of you. Let me put a bandaid on you. It doesn't go like, hey, um, left hand says, help me, I'm cut. Sorry, it has nothing to do with me. Bummer, but feel for you, but um, you know, I already gave. And I'm tired. And I, I can't walk over there. It won't do that. It'll hop on a plane and fly all the way over here. And um, so, so it just does that. Boom. You know, I manifest in front of you, like you were saying, the causes and conditions that bring me here. Voila, here I am. No, it's not by accident. You asked me to come. So I appear before you perfectly. I'm not talking about the best way to get high or how to clean your crack pipe. I'm talking about the Dharma because that's what you guys wanted to hear. So boom, here I am and I'm talking. And it's perfect in this way. When you um, uh, see things clearly, it makes the world a lot better and this compassion is there. And um, by the way, I have no idea what time it is. Am I? <laughs> Sorry. Huh? 8.43. 8.43. Okay, thank you. Um, the, but you, you see things in, in a proper way. And when you see things in a proper way, what, what happens is that you begin to change the environment around you. When you change the environment, it changes little by little everything in the area. When uh, I think Iris was one of the first people that started this group. And look what it grew into. And now you've got Susan leading the group. And look what it's turning into. Are, are you switched out now? No, no, no. I was going to say Susan and Helen. I, it's not just me. Okay. Me, I get a lot of help. I get a lot of help. Yes, and Sarah. Yes. Okay, thank you oh. for acknowledging that. Okay. Yeah. We'll give credit to, to all of you. To all the people. Like to all the people. And, and so the whole... So the whole thing is that all of a sudden a place like this manifests, not because you just simply put it in mind, but more importantly you put it in heart. That's a key. It's not just what it's worth to me, what do I get out of it, but what you realize, it's something that, that you want to share. And some of you have some realizations, some of you have more, but you have enough realization to realize that this is something that's, that's valuable 
to share with other people. And when you realize that, then what happens is, is that you, you want to keep doing things to help people. And when you do that, <coughs> later on, you create a wonderful environment around you. So this is how this compassion manifests. So this compassion then creates a pure land around you. Okay. So how many of you would like to create a little pure land island around you? All of us, right? That doesn't mean that it's going to hold off bill collectors, okay? Um, or anything like that, or any other adversities. Those things are natural. They, they come and go, come and go. Okay, but the, um, the idea of, of creating an oasis around you, and when you do that, what happens is people like to come into that oasis, or they'll invite you to share that oasis with them. And, and so what I do is I just go, and it's just like, just tap you on the head, boom, 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 or I should say tap you on the heart, and say, create this oasis here. So instead of having a situation where, where, um, where people are always angry, and if they're always angry, they create a very hostile environment around them. Um, anybody know people like that? It's very, very sad. It's very sad. And then people always wonder why people don't like them. And because they do that. So they, they really don't understand. Um, and so you help people. Uh, I once had a friend that was also my, my client, and she, she told me, you know, um, I'm really down right now. Um, people don't like me. And, um, and so she, she said, you know, even my mother doesn't like me. And I said, she goes, do you, do you know why? And I go, yeah. And I said, do you want to know the truth? And, and she said, yeah. I said, but the truth is the truth. Understand that. And then she said, okay. So I said, the people don't like you because you're a user. All you do is you have friends, but they're not really your friends. They're just like an ATM card that you use. Whenever you need something, you call on them. But you're never there for them. You're, you're just using them to, to make withdrawals but you never give anything back. If you need money from your mother, you say, Mom, I need money. You never ask her, how, she, how are you doing, Mom? I heard you were in the hospital. Are you okay? I'm giving you well wishes. Or your friends. What's wrong with you? Do you, you don't think your friends have problems? But you don't give them the time of day. But then you expect them to show up, and you take advantage of them. So that's why you don't have friends. She was shocked. But a light came on in her head. And, and, and she changed. She changed. Nobody had ever illuminated the mind for her like that. And all, all she needed was somebody to show her that she got a great sense of shame from what she was doing and began to rectify the problems that she had with each one of her friends and each people writing letters to them um, to to doing things for people, and and it changed her, it saved her, and, and but we don't see that. So when when one can see the mind clearly and how things go, 
we share that with other people so we can help alleviate the suffering. Not only do you alleviate the suffering from that person, but you alleviate the suffering of the people that that person affects. Not bad. Not bad. It's worth an investment of time. A one-person class. So what? If you don't do it, who's going to do it? So you create this this uh, um, idea of, of the Pure Land around you. You try to be a good person. You're not always going to be. You're still going to get mad every once in a while. But you're going to be able to control it. And you're going to use this compassion to help. Once you start being concerned about other people, your problems are don't seem as great. And so, um, you know, when you look at it, like I, I was um, uh, coming in today and Dan was telling me his problems with his car. And in the scheme of things of the people that I've been talking to this week and problems that they have, it probably ranks up there about uh, um, maybe a point five in the scale. But to him it was trials and tribulations. Oh, I should be so lucky. But, but in any case, it's still something that affects him, but he used it as his practice nevertheless. Not bad. That's the way we do things. But, we, but as we do that, we begin to become aware of all the problems that people have and how to resolve problems. You know? and, and when you see the things that, that, that affect you, and you don't allow them to affect you in the sense that you develop this compassion from the self. Like when somebody gets run over and you go, oh, poor person, you know, glad it's not me. Um, you know, because that's kind of what you're saying. You're not really saying glad it's not me, but you're kind of saying that in the self, you know, that that doesn't affect you. Rather than just say, everybody deserves some some compassion. Everybody deserves to to be able to, to do that. Once Schiffel was talking in a retreat and he said he said, What do you think? If if a butcher came, a butcher that, that every day he, he slaughters the, the pigs and the cows and the sheep and, and he wants to practice and come here, do you think we should let him in? The people go, No, no, he's a butcher, he's a murderer. You know, he violates the precepts. And he says, Gilbert, what do you think? I said, if not him, who else? Who, who more would better benefit from learning the Dharma than him? Why not? And, and this is the way you look at it. You don't look at it from the viewpoint that, that you know, only, only the good people can practice. Come on, if we, if we practice in this way, you know, we're going to be a very small group of people. Okay? So you, you have to, to um, open your heart. That comes from understanding how mind works. It comes from seeing why things arise in mind. Not here. Not here. Mind. All of this is mind. All of this, wherever we're at. No, they're non-sentient beings, like a book. But don't ask the book a question. Nevertheless, we still have our own self-nature, the self-nature of mind, self-nature of mind moving through the sentient being. The non-sentient being, it testifies in a different way. It testifies saying, anicca, anicca, impermanence, impermanence. Once I was a tree, now I'm a book. 
And so it, but it doesn't speak the same, um, let's say, conscious language. But it's not separate from mind. But we don't mistake it and start talking to the book. We use the mind, and this is where it becomes very, very delicate as to, to find the difference between mind and consciousness. So, what do you think? Do you think mind and consciousness are the same thing? Oh, it's getting late. <laughs> the lights are going on. No? What do you think it is? Um, I don't know what I think it is, but I know that you can be unconscious in a sense of like a coma, but the mind can still be active. You may not be conscious of what else is going on around you, but the mind is still active. Is that mind or, or unconscious consciousness? If you're in a dream, is it mind or consciousness? Mind. What do you think? <laughs> Come on, you guys are the sages here. <laughs> are you in a coma? Or are you in a dream? Huh? Consciousness? Consciousness? Yes, go ahead. The phenomena arises from mind, okay. So that if you're in a dream, would that be mind or consciousness? Be mind? And what'd you say? Consciousness. What's the difference? The awareness. Awareness. There's awareness there, but will that dream always be there? No. No. So it's very interesting, and it was something very funny. I, I um, had a class in Michigan, and we were talking about this subject, and one young girl, uh, college girl, she, she raised her hand, and she says, if, if nothing is real, um, then why do we even, why do we even practice? Why do, why do we even care about anything like that? It doesn't, you know, that doesn't even make any sense. And I had some of my senior students that I brought from uh, Riverside with me, and they're going, oh my God, she makes a good question. How's she going to answer that, you know? And, and so, so I said, well, suppose you have a roommate. She goes, yeah, I go, she's a female, yeah. And she was having a bad dream. Um, the dream is not real. But you saw her in a dream. She's like fighting in the dream. What would you do? She goes, oh, I'd wake her up. I go, why? It's not real. My students went, oh, you're so good. <laughs> How did you answer that like that? But that's it. That's it. It's an illusory experience, but nevertheless, it's still a dream. The consciousness is illusion. But nevertheless, it does have an impact. It has an effect. And there is suffering. Even though it's illusory suffering, one's still suffering just as one would suffer in a dream and they're monsters chasing them and they're in sand and they can't run. And so um, it's the same thing. Even though the people are here and it's a dream state, and nevertheless, people suffer. So we want to wake them up. But we understand this is consciousness. It, consciousness is impermanent. 
constantly changing in accordance with, with what's there. Awareness is mine. But awareness doesn't interfere with the consciousness arising. It, it, it lets it go in accordance with cause and condition. It is how the mind works. Once you understand how the mind works, and you go, oh, okay, now I see. When I'm meditating, and thoughts come up, and I come up, it's coming up naturally in accordance with cause and conditions. Because if I'm there and I hear a fast car go by, maybe I'll go, oh, I love fast cars. Okay, why? Because I put that in there. So that's going to arise. But if you're meditating, you just see it come up, that goes away. Why? Because it just does it. Little by little, those thoughts begin to, to dissipate and have less frequency and less intensity and less clinging. Because of discernment of mind, that is the difference. Okay, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow and I'm going to talk about it again the next day. This is your other one that you have to learn, okay? A little bit of a mouthful, but still. Write this down, okay. Sages return consciousness to mind. Fools turn mind into consciousness. Say, sure. Sages return consciousness to mind. Fools turn mind into consciousness. So one is an inverted view. The inverted view is, when am I going to become enlightened? I need to stop suffering. I, 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 I always do that, you know, because um, sometimes it's, when I, I see some emails from some of my students, there's so many eyes, and um, it sounds like a, a Mexican song, like, ay, 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 canta, no llores, you know, uh, sing, don't cry, you know, and it's all I, 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 I. Or the other time I had one where my, my students were emailing me and they said, well, you know, to me, this and this and me and this and me. And I went, okay, well, let, let me sing you a song. And I went, first, I have to clear my throat. Me, 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 me. And that's, that's all you see in their, their email. And they don't even see it. It's all me, 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 me. I, 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 I. And, and that's what causes your suffering. Why? Because you're converting uh, mind and consciousness. It's upside down. But if you return consciousness to mind, consciousness, whatever you're seeing right now, is not separate from mind, but it appears within mind. It appears within mind. So we did this before here, but if you picture, for instance, a red apple. Can you see the red apple? You see the red apple. Okay. Now, where is that red apple being projected on? It has to be projected on something. Now the red apple's gone. Where did it go? It's all mine. 
but we don't confuse the red apple to say the red apple is mine. It's consciousness, not separate from mine, but it's transitory. It comes and goes, just like the self. Well, I think I'll have the uh, scrambled eggs. No, I changed my mind. I'm going to have an omelet. Well, if your mind was always permanent that way, you'd always order scrambled eggs. But you can change your mind. No, you can't change your mind. You should say, no, I can't change my consciousness. Mind you can't change. Very interesting. You see, but we start from these premises and it, with this premise. And, and when we have this premise, then what happens is it enables us to practice in the right way. We are no longer trying to polish consciousness. So when we sit, we're clear about it. Whatever's arising, it's consciousness. Observation, that's awareness, what we call naked awareness. Naked awareness means without any kind of a cogitation, I like or dislike or neutral. <coughs> it's extremely clear about what's happening. When we do that, then we're aware. Once we begin to work in this way and develop this kind of discernment and it cuts off the eye, liberation, wonderful liberation, it enables you to use this body without the idea that you're going to get paid anything for it or you're going to do anything or that you're even using the body. There's no thought of it. There's no thought that, that oh, you know, I am doing anything. It just happens naturally. That's compassion. It's a compassion that ultimately transcends even the idea of wisdom and compassion. It, there's no longer the idea that there's wisdom or compassion. It's just perfectly functioning mind. It doesn't... And when, when you experience something like that, the trick is to try to make it last longer. And not easy, because then the self comes in. I, 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 me, 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 me. I'm tired. I, okay, enough of, of being enlightened. Let's go and have a Krispy Kreme donut or whatever. Let's go to the mall. No, let's turn back the, those clothes. I, I want to buy something. Whatever it is. And then you lost it, but you bring it back in. You bring it back in, and that is what Shifu, Master Shen Yang, used to say, that a person with a vow to break is a bodhisattva. A person without a vow to break is a non-practitioner. So even though you break vows, you make vows and you break them, you still have a vow to break. That's something. If you don't have a vow at all, you're not practicing. What are you doing here in this world? You're using up my oxygen. I can use this oxygen and put it to use. But what are you doing here? You're just taking up a parking space. What can you do? What can you do? Indeed, what can you do? No, you don't have to be like a traveling um, Dharma instructor. You can, wherever you're at, you can, you can create an incredible pure land around you. You start with your friends and your family, and then you develop. A lot of times people do that, and all of a sudden, boom, they have a study group. After they have a study group, boom, they have a chapter. You know, maybe not all of you have those kind of management skills to do it, 
but you have an ability to practice in a good way. If, if not to, to teach the Dharma, just not to create a little um, a cesspool around you, but a pure land. No, don't make the situation worse, make it better. And it, when you do that, it will help. Little by little, by the way that you practice, um, if you practice sincerely, it will work. The more you practice sincerely, the more it will work. Um, I uh, oftentimes close my emails with the word sincerely. And, and the reason I do that is because the word sincere um, comes from a Latin word, an Italian word, meaning sincera. Sincera um, is, is a word that they used to use in the, um, in the old days when they had marble statues. And if the artist, the sculptor, hit the statue wrong and nicked it, they would put wax to cover and they would cover it up like that. And so then somebody who wanted to buy it, a rich person looking at it and going, is this statue a good statue or is it all nicked up? And they say, oh, it's sincera, it's without wax, meaning that it's, it's, it's pure. And it's my way of reminding me to practice in the right way and the communication that I'm giving to the people of whatever I'm saying in that moment is without wax. It's, it's actually without Gilbert, okay? And even though I put Gilbert down there, it's really without him. And so, so this is the way you practice. You try to practice without these defects. The more you practice without, with, you know, in a very wholesome way, the more of an impact that you're going to make. So to me, when I talk to you, I talk to you not because um, I want you to change. I talk to you because I want you to change the world. Little by little, around you. So I'm talking to those who will listen to you. And if you, if you have this kind of a heart, it helps, it spreads. And, and it enables you to have an impact in this world. You can do it. You know, it, it really beats the American ideal of what life is. The American ideal of what life is, you go to school, you get married, you get two and a half kids, um, you um, maybe get divorced, or you vacation um, two weeks out of the year, um, you retire, and then you die. I guess there's something to be said about that. I don't know if it's anything good, but there's got to be more to this life than that. This, this life that you have here is so precious, a precious opportunity to practice, a precious opportunity to change the world, to really change. You can do it, you know, but you have to be realistic about it. I remember hearing there was this one person, I think he was a Qigong master, that had all of his students and he wanted to put them all together and, they, and he wanted them to, to think that um, they would change the world. And so at a point in time they all had this positive thought. Well, it didn't change the world. Um, but he was unrealistic 
in the way he was seeing it because cause and conditions never fail. There's an incredible tide against that kind of a change. But it doesn't matter. At least it helped something. It helped a little bit in terms of doing that. Um, and you, you look in this way. You don't have the idea, I'm going to change or I'm going to do, but you, you, you have the faith that the world can change. And even if you change it a tiny little bit, it's incredible what happens when you change it in this way. All of the changes that happen down the road because of this tiny, tiny little change that you make. As you begin to practice more, you'll become more aware of these types of impacts that can be made. After a while, you, you'll be very, very surprised. There's an interesting movie that came out, it's called Avengers or something, anybody see it? And, and they had this one person, an alien, that was very prescient, and he was able to see things that were happening or could happen in the future, and, and, and he was able to read all of these tendencies that could happen. That's the practice. When one's mind is attuned that way, it becomes aware of all of these tendencies. It can see things that are happening, and it can set into motion things that can produce a positive result. Likewise, it could produce a negative result, but if you, if you understand how mind works, you plug in. You plug in the things that will help. You plug in things that will change the world. And little by little, you can't plug it in and say, tomorrow it's going to have world peace. It won't do that. You know, John Lennon had a song, Imagine, very beautiful song, causing conditions. Unfortunately, not everybody buys into that. But if they did, one day if they did, oh my gosh, the world will change. And it can change. But we have to, to understand how mind works and, and what is the ailment of the world. And if we do that through wisdom, then this transcendent compassion will arise naturally. You don't have to worry about going, I'm such a nice person, I'm a very good person. It will come up naturally. You, you won't have anything to do with it because you won't be there. It will just arise. Moment to moment, it will be there. Now, when you, don't, uh, when you are there, then more than likely it's going to be harder for that transcendent compassion to be there, but little by little you begin to put the self aside, put it aside, put it aside, see the self for what it is. It's just an illusion that's arising. Then the, this transcendent uh, compassion will work incredibly. So today's class, although it may seem like it's very, very deep, it isn't so deep. All we're doing today was just setting the table for tomorrow and the next day of how mine works. If you don't know how mind works, how do you expect to do anything? How do you expect to practice? You know, what are you practicing? I'm practicing crossing my legs, keeping my mouth shut and trying not to fall asleep. That's not enough. You have to know how to fix the machine. And then when you, and what's very ironic about the whole thing is you find out the machine's not broken. It's functioning perfectly all the things that come up are neither sacred nor profane. They just arise due to causes and conditions. And then when you see it, you understand how to make a change, 
how, how to change the things and where to make the change at um, in terms of it. But if we're there and we're trying to polish up the self, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. When we sit to meditate and you're sitting there and you're hoping you're going to become enlightened or you're hoping you're going to stop your thoughts or you're hoping that, that you're on the right track, you've messed it all up before you've even gotten a minute into it. You've already messed up. Why? Because you're turning mind into consciousness. But if you're a sage, you return the consciousness to the mind. How do you do that? Is that you are aware. You are aware. Before I used to use this analogy that there was this mind ground and thoughts would arise and come out this way and then they'd seep back in. But actually my model was flawed because thoughts come in from all sorts of different directions. In fact, there's no directions. We just simply have to illuminate the awareness so that it's aware of when thoughts arise. When the thoughts arise, we know that it's mind. Where do they go? Where can they go? It's mind. But since they're transitory, those images dissipate. They they did not come into mind or out of mind. It's mind itself. So one, one master was asked, what is the substance of mind? Anybody remember? I, I talked about this once before a long time ago. No? Don't look away. <laughs> Don't look away. What's the substance of mind? Mind. Mind, you see? You got it. All right. Don't get too excited about it, though. <laughs> mind is substance of mind. That's it. If you understand that, you don't have to go any further. And um, so you begin to understand, all right, this is mine. That's how compassion will arise. And you set that in, into motion through the right view. If you don't have the right view, then what happens is that you're, you're constantly trying to perfect consciousness, and it's not going to work. It won't work, because consciousness is transitory. And so you, you let that go. You still do work within phenomena, but knowing that it's a dream. But you go around waking up people from the dream. The Diamond Sutra says all that you should think of of this fleeting world is a bubble in a stream, a morning star, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, um, a dewdrop on a leaf, an illusion, a phantasm, a dream. That's it. When you understand that, you realize consciousness is constantly changing. It's impermanent. But it is part of mind. But you don't do your work in the consciousness. You return it to mind. You're clear about that. When you're sitting, mind should just be naturally illuminated until 
no longer there's any illumination. Any questions? Confusion. Anybody confused? You're, you're confused? Always. You're always confused? Yeah. What are you confused about? Why it's so difficult to identify the self when it arrives. Yes, I'm sorry. The exercise with the bell made it clear. Uh huh. But it's so efficient. What's efficient? The self. No, it isn't efficient, though. That's the confusion. That's the cleverness of the, of the consciousness of the self. Because it always says, you need me. You need me. You know, remember that time when you told that girl or you told that person that thing and you told them to, to F off? They needed that. It's not efficient. It's not efficient. Mind without self is, is there. Mind, you don't have to be a judge of the world to say, I like or dislike. One can see it. But the one we attach to that, <coughs> and we're working with something that's not um, so, let's say, innocent, like a, a peal of a bell. But it's something more in your life that you do or that you say, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to tell the boss, heck with it, or I'm going to do this, or whatever, you know, and then I would rather have wisdom there than self any day. Self's going to mess it up. Wisdom will tell you what needs to be there. Self won't. Self wants to be there. Self wants to, to have the self-love, self-conceit, and so it will mess things up. But the self is very clever. It, it always will tell you, hey, you need me. But then when, when it messes up, what does it say? Wow, you're in trouble now. You know, I'm out of here. You're on your own. It's very funny, but that's the way, the way it works. I don't know if that helped you or not. You had a question, Susan? Your confusion? Go ahead, it's all right. You have to speak louder. I'm sorry. I left my hearing aid at home, and I apologize. Okay. Uh, with meditation, I've always, I've always thought that you were supposed to, you know, a thought arises, and you're supposed to dismiss it. Yeah, I mean, just kind of, you know, let it go. And and I'm a little confused because, and I, I thought that was dropping attachments, you know, dropping attachments. And so there really wasn't any, um, you know. Any, any, I mean, I, I recognize certain thoughts are me and certain thoughts are just thoughts. Um, but I always thought that I was supposed to drop them regardless of whether it was me or whether it was thoughts. Not, I just wondered if you could comment on my understanding yeah. of practice. Absolutely, and that's why I'm here. Yeah. And that's why, why I chose to, to travel around the country because that it is an erroneous view point. And been perpetuated, you know, uh, in a way where um, you think that you have to drop these thoughts. No, you don't have to drop them. You don't have to do anything. The, the thoughts, they're, they're, they come and go and they come and go. You have a myriad of thoughts. It doesn't matter. They, they're there naturally, so how could you purge them out of your mind? So you don't have to do that. The pressure's off. All you have to do is, is bring the mind back to mind rest it in mind and be aware 
of all thoughts that are arising, including the self. Be aware of it. You, you don't have to do anything more than that. Just shine wisdom upon mind. And, and all of those thoughts that are there, they're perfectly there, but they're, you're using a kusala method, a wholesome method, where it's not sticking to anything. So it's like a Teflon mind versus you using one of those old iron kettles to, to, to cook a, an egg that just sticks to everything and smells everything up. Whereas with this, with this mind of awareness, then consciousness is constantly returning to mind, returning to mind, returning to mind. It will naturally return to mind if not given any kind of extra juice or power to perpetuate itself. So you simply have the mind of not grasping or not attaching. The thoughts come up, let them come up. They can be all over, the, there'll be thousands of thoughts. Let them come up. Don't worry about it. Be patient. Really, really patient. Be patient. Let the thoughts come up, let them go, let them go. They're going to be coming up like crazy. It's like, like here in Chicago, you guys had a thunderstorm. There was a lot of rain, right? But then the rain stopped. You didn't have to say, oh, when is it going to stop? It just stopped on its own, naturally. And that's the same thing. Those thoughts will begin to dissipate and stop on their own. You don't have to do anything. It's a self-cleaning oven. You don't have to do anything. You, in particular, Susan, the I, the self, don't manifest it. Stick with the method. The method itself is a stuck scrambled egg on an iron pan, but it you just stick with that and don't let the other parts stick. You just you're just using this poison of this illusory um, concept to keep the mind in one place until you can discern what, as thoughts are arising to let them go, and you let them go, and you let them go. But as thoughts come up, then all of a sudden you take and go, oh, I choose you, I want to take you. Then it's stuck, and it keeps sticking that way. But if you do that, it, it creates a problem. There was a time when I was at a retreat where we were doing a slow walking meditation um, in the woods, and there was this young man there. And this, this is like during the summertime or around June, so you can imagine how many bugs there were in the forest when we were doing it. And we were there, and the, and the, um, the young man was there, and, and he started meditating, and then the bugs came, one, one um, mosquito came, like that. So he goes like that. And I was behind him, and I just thought, big mistake. And because the movement attracted all the other mosquitoes, he was ignorant to how mosquitoes work, and developing heat, and that this heat signature that the mosquitoes go, oh, look, take a look at that. Because everybody else is walking very, very slow, so they're not really creating a big heat signature. But once he did that, they were coming in more, like more and more and more. And the selfish side of me, Gilbert, just said, better him than me. <laughs> but the, the practicing side of me said, he, he was ignorant to it, and so after a while, it was like he was, he was doing the lambada, you know, just like, like his hands were going all over, and the more he did it, 
the more the mosquitoes came. And that's the way people practice. And they mess the practice up because of that. You just have to sit and be patient. Wait it out. Wait it out. Just sit. Wait it out. Wait it out. Wait it out. Wait it out. Stay with the method. Wait it out. The onslaught of all the things that are happening to you. Wait it out. Just like like um, Shakyamuni Buddha, when he was sitting uh, under the Bodhi tree, he waited it out. You know, Mara's armies came and they attacked him. He waited it out. You know, uh, Mara's daughters came. He waited it out. He saw clearly what was there. All the different types of vexations and attractions and discriminations, he just waited them out. He didn't have to send anything away. All he did was convert every moment to wisdom. What was the wisdom? Returning consciousness to, to mind. Knowing that, that consciousness is part of mind. It's arising naturally. And as it arises naturally, you don't have to do anything. But we mess it up. We don't. Susan, if you, if you have faith in what I'm saying, the next time when you sit to meditate, your practice is going to change. It's going to really change until you say, wow, it really changed. Then you messed it up. <laughs> but if you practice in that way, we don't have to worry about thoughts coming and going from your mind or, or coming in. They're going to be going out. Let them go. Let them go. They're neither sacred nor profane. You know, you, you attach to nothing. You just use wisdom to know how mind works. Why are they there? Because you put them there. They'll go away. If you leave them alone, they'll go away. Okay? Any other questions? Follow-up questions? Oh, there's one over here. Good. <coughs> I'm real loud, though. So I have an English issue. So the consciousness and an awareness is the same. They are inter... In not circumstance, it's intermittent. I, I didn't understand. Consciousness and awareness, is that what you're saying? <coughs> yeah, it's the same. It's mind. Consciousness and and mind is mind. Remember what we said, what is the substance of mind is mind. I'm not talking about the mind. I only ask the awareness and the consciousness. Oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. Awareness is the function of mind. Uh -huh. Consciousness arises in mind due to causes and conditions. Uh -huh. Okay? Clinging is consciousness. That's not awareness. Clinging is, is cogitation. Mental processes, mental impressions that are arising, that are churning up. You could uh, equate it to the foam on uh, a wave crashing on a beach. They're like little bubbles, but they pop, and they're the ocean again. They're not separate from the ocean, they, but they appear in the ocean. And, and they take the idea of this appearance to be permanent, but you know the bubble's going to pop. It constantly pops. The only difference is that because it's constantly forming bubbles, there's that impression that it's permanent. But when you use wisdom to, to, to discern what is arising in mind, 
it stops the film. It slows the film down. And when it slows the film down, it's able to see thoughts forming like ideas and then converting to a, to a thought. How does it do that? When the mind is quieted, when you, when you, uh, what works faster, a computer with a virus or one without a virus? Without a virus, right? But when the computer has a virus, it thinks it's working to maximum capacity. Why? Because the virus tells it, oh, you're doing a good job. But when the virus is gone, the computer works much, much faster. It moves much, much faster when it has less windows that are open, programs that it's running. When you have a mind that is not attaching to anything that's arising within it, it the mind works incredibly fast, incredibly fast. We always sit there going, when is my mind going to stop? I want it to stop. I want it to stop. No. You want your mind to speed up. You want it to work efficiently. It's the opposite. If you want to make something go in slow motion, like in a movie, what do you do to the film? You speed the rate up of the film to make things go in slow motion. Right? No film people here. <laughs> Trust me. You speed it up, when you speed up the film, then things go in slow motion. You speed up, what we do is because every time we attach to something, a book, a very good book, I love this book, I love the color, I do this, it slows up the machine. Because it's giving impressions of it, and it's opening up windows. Oh, I like this book, I want this, I wonder where I can get that book, whatever. And it's slowing the machine down. It slows it down. It's not necessary. And so it's slowing down the processes of what's there. What was that noise? What's that? Okay, oh, you know, all these things slow up the machine. So it cannot work at, at its optimum speed. But when, when the mind has no obstructions, it's clear, it's perfect, it's working at a very fast pace. And it can see all these things. And it becomes aware of it. And it can see when consciousness arises. It can see that, oh, this book arose in mind, and there was a grasping that was going to go. Or, and if it doesn't catch it in the beginning, it catches it when it's grasping, it's going, no, it's my book, it's my book. No, I see that that's grasping, boom, and then it goes away by itself. You don't have to do anything, but you become aware. So the mind is actually able to process more information. It's able to process a lot of information about things. And all of a sudden, all this information is coming in, but because the mind is in a state of equanimity, it enables all this to flow in, like a download, without picking and choosing what to download. But it is aware of cause and conditions, and is enabled to, to, um, to bring the mind in accord with whatever state it finds itself in. So the purpose of Chan is bring the mind into accord with whatever state it finds itself in and, and use that in the right way. And when that happens, then we, we work perfectly. Uh, one story, um, 
about there was this uh, one one actor, his name is um, Robert Preston, and he was a very young actor, and he decided that he wanted to try out for a part, and with a very famous producer, uh, uh, director John Houston, and um, so when he went to go to try out, he saw that there were so many actors um, that were there, and they all looked like him, and he's going like, well, what am I going to do? So he just waited. He went. And they came back, and by that point, they were almost all gone. And then he went in to, to interview with uh, this director, John Houston. And when he went in, he, um, John Houston asked him, well, do you have any experience? He goes, well, just a little bit in place, but to tell you the truth, he goes, I don't know how to act. But if you tell me how to act, I promise you I will follow your instruction completely. And I have faith that you will, that you know of what you tell me. And so John Houston got up and he left the room and he came back with another person. He said, "I want to introduce you to Robert Preston, an actor." And he got the job. And he said, "Okay, but Mr. Houston, you have to teach me how to act." <coughs> and he said, "In due time, in due time." So they started practicing. I'm sorry. I'm okay. Thank you. Uh, they started practicing and rehearsing, and he said, uh, when are you going to teach me how to act? He goes, not now. Wardrobe fitting. When are you going to teach me? Not now. He started getting worried, because he hadn't taught him. Now was the day of the filming, and, and he still hadn't taught him how to act. And he's going, oh my God. He told me he was going to promise, so he went and he said, you know, you promised me that, that you were going to teach me how to act, and now is the day of the filming, and you still haven't taught me anything. And he said, you're quite right. Okay, now is the time. And so he says, follow me. So he was sitting in front of the camera, and he followed him to the camera. And so he says, look in the camera. And so he looks in the camera, and he says, you see over to the right and the left? What is that? And he goes, well, that's the borders. And the top and the bottom, those are the borders. He goes, yeah. He goes, we call that a frame. And he says, only put what needs to be there in that frame. And he, he understood how to become an actor. And likewise, in our lives, we only put in what needs to be in a particular place at one time. So we don't overplay our part or underplay our part. <coughs> There's a lot of people, especially out in California, we call them drama queens. Oh! You know, there's so many, so much drama in their life all the time. They're constantly overplaying their part. And other people who are so meek, they don't play at all. They're never engaged in, in, in playing the part. So, so what we do is, in the practice, when wisdom arises, the wisdom enables us to play the part perfectly from wherever we're at, whatever we're doing. We're clear about it. We're aware of it. And when we're aware of it, it enables us to, to create a, a pool around us of compassion and of understanding and of harmony. That's what the practice of Chan is all about. When you understand how mind works, it's a lot easier to do that. Any other questions? No? Okay. I think it's time to stop.
the joint palms down. Thank you for coming tonight. I haven't. Let's see what time is? Nine thirty-seven. Okay. If you have more questions tomorrow, come. I will answer your question. I think it starts at nine thirty. Nine thirty. Yeah. Tomorrow, I'll teach you the secret of life. Thanks, buddy.